Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 21. You see the title there. Behold your king riding on the foal of a donkey. Behold your king riding on the foal or the colt of a donkey. Maybe the first question might be, what? If you were a Jew in that time and you're looking at the Roman Empire as one of the most ruthless and powerful empires the world has ever known, and you're thinking that your king that's going to combat that empire, that's going to drive them out of Israel, is this man, Jesus, riding on a donkey? Is this truly our king? Let's look at God's Word. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the the donkey and the colt placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, shaken, and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would instruct our hearts through your holy word. Encourage and lift us up through your spirit and speak through me as your servant. Bless the hearts of all who are here in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold your king riding on the colt of a donkey. While some were shouting Hosanna, I think there were others, especially the Jewish leadership, who were looking at this scene as Jesus is riding in on this donkey and questioning what this parade is all about. Do you people actually think that this man can drive out the Roman Empire from our midst? Do you think that this man can restore us to our former glory of King David and Solomon and the leaders before him, the leaders that followed? Do you think that he can restore our power and our glory? And there's questions. Who is this man who comes here? And as as I was looking at this, I'm actually reminded of Earlier, Israel's earlier history, when Israel wanted a king to reign over them. For the first time, you remember they were a theocracy, 
where they had judges who would judge the people on behalf of God. And so that wasn't working very well. They, did, they didn't like how Samuel's sons were, were acting and didn't believe that they would be good, uh, good judges over Israel. And so they wanted to be like all the other nations and they wanted a king to rule over them. And Samuel warned them, if you have a king, it's not going to go the way you think. It's not going to be all wonderful and and blessed as you think. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. The way you think it's going to be is not going to be the way it is at all because the king will be heavy-handed. That's how we are in our hearts. That power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so he's warning them ahead of time that this is how it's going to play out. Well, we want a king to rule over us, so they picked Saul. They picked Saul because he was head and shoulders above uh, all the rest. He was taller than his peers, and he seemed like he was a a good-looking man, an intelligent man, and he would fit the role well. How did that work out for them? Didn't work out well at all, did it? And so the next king is going to be of God's choosing, not the people's choosing. And so God sends uh, Samuel down to Jesse in Bethlehem, and he says to Samuel, he says, I want you to go there and I'm going to choose the next king of Israel and you are going to anoint him for me. Well, I don't want to go down there because if Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. He's the king, you know. Well, bring a heifer with you to sacrifice and invite the elders of of Bethlehem and and Jesse and his his boys, his family to to the meal. And so that's what what Samuel did. He went down there and and, uh, he spoke to the elders first. And told them to consecrate themselves and then come for the feast. And then he invited Jesse and his sons as well. So they have a feast after the sacrifice is offered, after they were consecrated. Uh, consecration here means like we're getting ready for church. You don't come to church sweaty and dirty. You, you clean up, take a shower and put on decent clothes and, and you come, uh, come uh, consecrated, so to speak, uh, to the house of the Lord. So they're, they're arriving there. And sometime after the feast, after they've partaken of, of the sacrifice of the animal, uh, Jesse, or Samuel starts the process of choosing the next king. And so uh, Jesse brings his sons, eldest to youngest, before Samuel. He starts with Eliab. And Eliab is notably a, a good-looking, strong young man. And Samuel notices that and says, he has a kingly presence to him. Surely this is the anointed of the Lord. And the Lord says, no, that's, that's not it. Well, we go to the next one. And you've got to remember what the Lord said to Samuel regarding outward appearances. And this is important regarding how we view our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is in 1 Samuel 16. God says to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. If you just stop there, you need to think about how much greater and wiser and more powerful God is than we are and what matters to him compared to what matters to us. The Lord does not look at things, the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the soul of a person who we really are within. You can fake it on the outside. You can't fake it on the inside. And God sees who we are within jesse's sons are presented as i said eliab had been uh, rejected so jesse brings his next eldest son abinadab nope god has not chosen you and then my he brings his son shama 
Nope, that one, that's not the one either. He has four more sons. He marches them all in front of, Je- of Samuel. And, and Samuel says, no, it's, it's not any of these. And he knows the Lord knows what he's doing here. He knows his mission, that he's to anoint a king. And the question is, who, is there anyone left? He says, well, we've got the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. We'll bring him because we're not going to sit down and continue until we see him. David is considered one who is ruddy and handsome. Ruddy is reddish. Uh, it's most, most likely reddish hair, but it could be kind of a bronze body from sitting out in the sun all the time watching the sheep. But he was definitely a handsome, good-looking young man. Had fine features. And that's what stands out to, to Samuel. And God's, and, and God's saying, did you not hear me the first time? It's not about what's external. It's not, what, what, it's not what, about what's outward. It's about the heart. It's about a person's soul that matters to me. It's one thing I notice in here is that they were all consecrated except for one. You know who the one was? David. Why? Because his heart was a heart after the heart of God. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He praised the Lord while he was out there watching over the sheep. He was devoted to the Lord. And that's what God saw. And so he comes not consecrated, at least as far as I know. And God receives him and anoints him in the presence of all of his brothers so that everyone knows that he is the next king of Israel. But I think of Samuel looking at this situation and thinking, really the youngest Is this all you've got left? Is just the youngest? And God says, yes, that is the one I am choosing. He's the one. I I look at this story as God sees not the external appearance of of David, but a beautiful soul devoted to him in faith and courage. I, I, I look at this passage and I bring it up because today we are so taken with optics. We are so taken with optics. How things appear instead of how things really are. How quick are people to judge someone today by what they initially observe rather than digging deeper to find out what really happened? Should we not judge someone based on who they really are instead of how they are portrayed? Because you can, you can portray anyone in any, any way you want, basically. I, you think of the famous quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says, I have a dream. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I believe his intent here is not directed at one race, but all races. That all races should not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of of their character. Martin Luther King's desire was that people would see the character of their soul rather than judging them based on their outward appearance. And yet, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? How many people in society continue to identify others based on what they choose to see and portray rather than discovering and rightly presenting who that person really is? I was thinking as I was working through this message that we're living more and more in a prosecutorial society than an evidential society. 
It's not so much about finding the evidence and, and following the evidence regarding what is true about an individual as much as it is prosecuting against that person and, and trying to explain to everybody who this person is through your own vantage point, through your own perspective. And we know who the grand prosecutor is. His name is what is defined as that, Satan. Satan, Satanas means prosecutor. And it concerns me where we're at, save for the grace of God. Well, in contrast to King David, Jesus is not ruddy or handsome. He's not that warrior, soldier, king uh, manifestation that David is. He has a more humble appearance, if you will. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, He had no beauty or majesty, no outward majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Uh, Again, the outward appearance of Jesus doesn't impress anyone. He is not the handsome man that David is or Solomon. Jesus' beauty and glory was within Him. Hence, in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, We behold a king riding on the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem to a cheering crowd who is shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! There are three questions I want to address here regarding this scene, what is taking place. And it comes, it all has to do with perception. The first question is, what kind of king do the Jewish people see riding on that donkey? And then, what kind of king does God see riding on that donkey? And thirdly, what kind of king do you and I see riding on that donkey's colt? First, what, are the, what, do, what kind of king do the Jewish people see riding on the donkey? Well, you could see what kind of king they think he is by how they responded to him. If you look in your Bibles, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9. In verse 5 here, he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The key word there is gentle. Your king comes to you gentle. Gentle, riding on the colt of a donkey. If, if Jesus was coming in to conquer Israel as a warrior, he would have come in on a, on a white stallion, which is what kings would do. They would separate, you know, a white horse is kind of unique. They would come in on a white Mustang or a white stallion, and as they came through the entrance of the gates, that was the recognition of everybody that it was time for war, and he was going to come in to conquer all, whom he was, he was, all who was in his midst. And yet Jesus doesn't arrive on a stallion, does He? The flip side of that. If you were coming in the name of peace, to bring peace to a community, to a society, instead of riding on that stallion, you would be riding on the back of a donkey. A humble creature. And as Jesus comes into the community, into the town, what's He riding on? He's riding on the back of a humble donkey. Well, how did the Jews see this? Did they see Jesus fulfilling Daniel's prophecy that through Jesus we can have peace with God through forgiveness of our sins? Or did they see the arrival of peace in another way? 
There's no doubt that they initially recognized Jesus as a king, but perhaps many recognized Jesus as being divine, as truly being the Son of God. Verse 8 says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The Greek word for spreading their cloaks is a, is a unique term used by Matthew here. Uh, the word is stronuo. It is used in classic Greek literature as a way of placating the gods to gain their favor, especially in times of crisis. The Latin equivalent is lectisternium, where Romans would spread out fine linens over their couch and chairs and place the stone or wooden figurines of their deities on the couch and prepare a meal for them with the understanding that the divine spirits of these, of these gods would enter into these figurines, these effigies, and partake of the meal with them. And the whole purpose of it was to placate or to get in good favor with the gods so that they would protect them in a time of crisis, very similar to the Greeks. Now, I, I bring this up not to promote Greco-Roman uh, theology or, or uh, mythology, but to explain the meaning of the word Matthew uses here to help us understand that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the Jews are shouting, and the Jews are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When they are shouting that, they are recognizing Jesus not just as king, but as the Messiah, and not just as a human Messiah, but as a divine Messiah. As God come in flesh, coming to save them from their enemies. The problem is how they view the mission of the Messiah. R.C. Sproul comments on this scene saying, Jesus knew what, he, what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He was fully aware of the hostility of the Jewish religious leaders there. Jesus knew that the people initially celebrating him had a largely misguided understanding of who he was. They wanted a king in a chariot. They wanted a king who would drive out Roman, the Roman occupiers. They wanted a king that would set them free, from, from free in worldly terms, not free from sin. In short, they were not pri- primarily interested in a king who would bring salvation. They were not interested, primarily interested in a king who would bring them salvation. They wanted temporary salvation. They wanted to be liberated from their Roman occupiers. They wanted the glory of Israel restored to them like the days of old. And that is not the reason God sent His Son into this world. And yet from pulpits, too many pulpits, this kind of message of temporary salvation is proclaimed these days. It's a salvation based on your efforts towards God and usually starts out with a focus on your faith rather than God's grace. As we, my wife and I were at the Ligonier Conference this last week, I was reminded over and over in the messages that we don't run towards God when we're sinners. Adam and Eve never ran to God after they sinned. They ran away from God. It is God who pursued them in His grace that brought them salvation. He is the one who slew the animals that are the first sacrifices. He is the one who clothed them with the garments, showing forth the righteousness that they received through the blood of these animals shed for them, the life shed for them. 
It is not we who pursue God. It is God who pursues us. And yet how many pulpits these days are proclaiming and preaching that we have to have faith. We have to be the ones who pursue God. We're the ones who seek after Him. When it is He who seeks after us. Oh, there are some, if you have enough faith, you can twist God's arm and you can get Him to do whatever you want. If you're sick and you have enough faith, you just pray. God will heal you. Has God healed everybody who has prayed in faith? And don't tell me those people who died did not have faith. No, He doesn't. Does God bring out of poverty everybody who prays for riches? No, He doesn't. I'm not saying that God doesn't love to bless His people. He does. What I'm saying is God is sovereign. And it is His sovereign grace that accomplishes the purposes that He wants to accomplish in this world through His people. You look at this and you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Just a few verses down in chapter 21, Jesus says something like, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, which Jesus cursed it and it withered, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Well, the important question there is, in whom are you placing your faith? Jesus is directing us to have faith in God who has the power not just to wither the fig tree, but cast the mountains into the sea. That's an allusion to the flood when God rearranged the landscape of this world. When Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, he is not addressing the act of faith by itself. That if you want something bad enough from God, if you petition God strong enough, long enough, God will give you what you want. That is how you address us. That is not how you address a sovereign God. That is the mindset of a person who thinks that they are actually sovereign over God. The biblical sense of petitioning God, the biblical sense of prayer, how we should approach God is answered in the Westminster Confession of Faith Shorter Catechism, question 98. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. Prayer is offering up to God the desires, our desires for things agreeable to His will. It is us aligning with the will of our sovereign God, not trying to make God align with our sinful heart's desires. We do this, we pray in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies that He does not give us what our sins deserve. So Jesus is addressing a continued trusting of God without doubting Him. As in when Jesus says in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. This is Jesus' passive righteousness, the willing to, be, to do what is right even when He is the one who is acted upon. Even though He is the one who knows He is going to have to suffer on that cross and die for us. Imagine living a perfect and holy life. The only one in human history who has truly done this. 
And then God says you need to offer your life, that perfect and holy life, as a sacrifice on behalf of those who hate you, despise you, and mock you. Those who would crucify you. And you do it. You do it. And on that cross, you say to God, your Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. I do. This is the kind of king God the Father sees riding on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, into Jerusalem. God sees a king who fully trusts him no matter what. The Apostle Paul speaks of this mindset of this trust in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. And he encourages us to have the same mindset. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, continuously being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Becoming obedient again is Christ's passive righteousness where He obediently trusts His Heavenly Father every, all day, every day, even to the point of death where He would be offered as a holy sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin through His precious blood shed for us. I want you to picture in Matthew 21 what was going on when Jesus was riding that donkey into Jerusalem? He would have entered through the sh- what they call the sheep's gate. And given that it was Passover, uh, lambs, numerous lambs would be going through that gate to be offered up as sacrifices uh, to pay the penalty for sin, to justify those who have sinned in the presence of God. And so here are all these lambs on this path. Perhaps they were you know, separated and moved away from Jesus as he was coming. But if you can imagine a, a whole grand number of, of lambs out here that are going to be offered as a sacrifice. And then in the midst of them is the Lamb of God, as John says, who will take away the sins of the world, riding on a donkey into, the, into Jerusalem. This is God sending his son Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away our sin once and for all. He's sending him into Jerusalem to be a sacrifice for us, for our sins. Here is God the Father sending the one he promised to Adam and Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Here's the one he promised to Abraham. When Abraham was asked to give up his firstborns or his son as a sacrifice to cover his sins against God. Instead, God says, no, hold back the knife. Behold, and there's a ram caught in the thicket. 
And, and Abraham told his son Isaac, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. This promise that was made to him and all the saints of the Old Testament is coming to fruition as the Lord is providing the sacrifice to save us from our sins so that we might have everlasting peace with him. Here is the messianic king who is tempted in every way by the devil as we are and yet without sin. Here is the messianic king Jesus who even though he was without sin became sin for us on the cross taking upon himself our sin putting it to death that we may receive his righteousness. Here is the messianic king who would die on a cross to be resurrected after three days to show his conquest over the power of death. And we'll get to that soon, by the way. The only way that death can be overcome is that the just wrath of God is satisfied. The just wrath of God against our sin, against our sinful estate, is satisfied. God's just condemnation of your sin is satisfied through Christ's sacrifice so that you are viewed as holy in God's sight, only because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ received by faith in Him. The Father knows the divine character of His Son, Jesus. That is why the only one who can come to God must come through the righteous atoning blood of Jesus Christ. So what kind of king do you see riding on this donkey? What kind of king do you see? Do you see a king here who is sent here to give you a transient, temporary victory over your foes? You don't like who is governing you? And you would like to see King Jesus remove them from power? Not that you can't pray for that. But would it not be better to seek God's will and what He would have you do in His kingdom before you pray about the kingdoms of men? When you look at Jesus, do you see a King who is here to give you your heart's desire? Whatever you ask, as long as you have enough faith. Or do you see a King who would serve in your place? A king who would take your place in death and judgment so that you may receive his place in life and freedom, living in peace with God forevermore. What kind of king do you see? Are you looking at who Jesus really is? Do you see a king's love for his people that is far greater than tongue or pen can tell? Do you see a king's grace that is deeper than the deepest ocean, even far beyond the starry sea? Do you see a king securing a future for his people that is better than you could ever imagine? Who do you see? Perception is important as it's tied to our faith. I can remember when I lived out west, had a ministry out west, and I was invited to one of my pastor friends, uh, his house. He lived up north from us, 
And so I came in to visit, and as I entered his house, I didn't know one of his church members was going to be there with him. And uh, I wasn't... uh, I was introduced to this church member and I didn't know that this person had been in a serious accident and much of her face has been, had been burned so that she was disfigured. And I confess that, you know, your first glance, you're taken back a little bit as you have a template in your mind of what people look like normally and this was not normal in your perspective. And you try not to focus, obviously. You look away and and think about uh, who this person really is. And that's what the Spirit, while we were talking, the Spirit prompted me, look at who this person really is. Get past the outward appearance. Get past the externals. Look at who this person really is. And as I was doing so, I saw a beautiful soul, a beautiful person, who loves the Lord, who, yes, after the accident had to go through much time of repair and healing, a process that was painful. But in the midst of that pain, she she recognized and, and discovered the great love of Christ who loves her for who she is. And if you really look at it in the eyes of God, because of our sin, we all look disfigured. None of us look that great to God because of our sin. And yet He loves us still, doesn't He? He's gracious towards us still. As God was convicting me to see her for who she really is, I really appreciated this sister in Christ Jesus who loved the Lord and whom the Lord had so blessed. And I was reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18 that we are passing away in this life. Though outwardly, he says, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day in our soul by the power and work of the Spirit. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. This is not works. This is a sense of continuing by faith. This is that obedient nature within us that the Spirit continues to enable us to persevere by faith through the trials that we face in this life. Yes, there are ups and downs. But God gives us the grace to press on. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Behold your King who comes riding on the colt of a donkey. He comes to make everlasting peace between you and God through forgiveness of your sins.